Welcome to the Saints and Scholars podcast. Today's episode is titled, It's Complicated. This episode will be talking about Baptist origins, we'll be talking about Oliver Cromwell, and we'll be talking about how glorious was the glorious revolution. We're joined by Dr. Crawford Gribben, who is well qualified and able to help us think through some of these very complicated issues in Irish church history. There's a lot of debate around where Baptists uh, came from, but uh, can you tell us, uh, you know, as a historian, how, how you would read it? Where, where, where does that particular Baptist identity really bubble out of? And how, why or how does that view of where uh, a Baptist identity comes from, how, how does that change the way people today would maybe look back um, and, and see their themselves as Baptists? It's a great question, Andrew, probably because it's kind of hard to answer. In the past, people have tended to debate whether Baptists come from English Puritanism or come from continental Anabaptism. And there's all kinds of reasons, theological and cultural, why one group of modern-day Baptists might prefer the Anabaptist tradition, um, for you know, for often for good reasons. And there's all kinds of reasons why another group would want to identify a, 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 an alternative set of origins uh, among the English Puritans. I think actually both are right. I think both are right because there's, the, the, group that, the group that today identifies as Baptist wasn't always one group. It was, for, for much of the 17th century, it was two groups. And one of those groups, the General Baptists, as they were known, did seem to have links or origin points um, that included uh, Anabaptist groups in the continent, but the other group who were known in the time at the time as particular Baptists um, did did not have any Anabaptist roots, but in fact had roots within the English Puritan movement. And in fact, when the particular Baptist churches put together their first statement of faith in 1644, the title page of it said it was a statement of faith. I forget the exact title, but something like a statement of faith by seven baptized churches of Christ in London, falsely called Anabaptist. So they wanted to be really clear that no matter, even if the general Baptists wanted to promote their Anabaptist links, which they did from time to time, um, the particular Baptist did not. So the, the Baptist story is really a story of how these two very different groups exist in this often quite uneasy relationship. Not always uneasy. There's interesting points of contact and friendship between them, but it's, it's quite an uneasy relationship until about the 18th century. And in the 18th century, Baptist historians in England want to talk about a single Baptist denomination or a single Baptist identity instead of promoting um, understanding of the fact that there were, in fact, two rival groups. As I said, sometimes sharing personnel, sometimes people moved, even churches moved between them. Um, and of course, as well, there were other Baptist groups at the time. There were Seventh-day Baptist groups um, that, there, you know, there, I mean, Baptists are weird at the moment, but they were even weirder in the 17th century uh, because there were so many different kinds. And actually, a, a number of the people that we think of as Baptist, people like John Bunyan, were not in their own day recognised as Baptists. They were recognised as Congregationalists. So J John Bunyan famously had his own children baptised as infants in the parish church, um, which is not something that, that many modern-day Baptists would do. Um, but, you know, you get... So you get the general Baptists who are, you know, Anabaptist in origin. You get the particular Baptists who are 
English Puritan in origin. And then you get mixed congregations that allow basically whoever they want into membership. Um, and, and, then, and then these other groups as well, Seventh-day Baptists and others who are much more apocalyptic, um, sometimes Hebraic uh, in the way they think about things. Um, Baptists, but Baptists are, 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 are an interesting group. I, I mean, I suppose I know most about the particular Baptists during this period, but the particular Baptists operate initially as a kind of a subset of the congregational movement. And they are, in a way, congregationalists who just spend a bit more time thinking about baptism and, and gradually come, come to the opinion that, well, first of all, they agree that the subjects of baptism ought to be believers only. And then some years after that, they come to agree, by and large, but never, ex never exclusively, that the proper method of baptism is actually by immersion. But they don't always agree with that, you know, and, and, and there's mixed practice on that as well. The, um, the particular Baptist churches, because of their congregational background, tend to see themselves as independent of each other, autonomous, interdependent, but, but fundamentally they stand or fall on their own. The general Baptists tended to organise themselves in almost a Presbyterian structure. So they had, they had very formal links with each other. They had... Um, they had sort of um, institutional relationships that stretched above the local church. So whereas the, the, the particular Baptists organised themselves as an association or in associations, which were sort of, you know, fluid but mutually supportive structures, the general Baptists, on the other hand, really were much, much more rigid and wanted to keep everyone um, going at the same time. The, the General Baptists and the particular Baptists had interesting views in worship. We tend to think a lot about their view in baptism, but that, that wasn't really what they were known for in the 17th and early 18th century. They, they had very, by modern day standards, very strange views of, of worship. And they seemed to share these views of worship across that general particular divide. So for example, the earliest General Baptist churches, which came out of, English separatism and continental Anabaptism in the early 1600s um, decided that to use any book, and I really mean any book, hymn books, or even the Bible, was to limit the spirit's activity. So they would meet for a long time. They would sit in silence um, and they would wait for the spirit to move. They weren't, they weren't Bible people in that sense. Um, and, and so in terms of worship, the impact there was upon congregational singing. These people had come out of the Church of England, let's say, where they had been used to singing psalms in a congregational way. Uh, but in their new in their new general Baptist congregations, they would sit in silence, sometimes for seven or eight hours, waiting for the Spirit to move. If the Spirit moved, someone might give a prophesying or they might sing a prophetic song, but that song would be an individual solo. Now, that's the sort of weird beginnings of the general Baptist movement. But the particular Baptists picked up on this as well. So when the particular Baptist movement began, they didn't sing. Uh, and even into the 1640s, into the 1650s, the only singing that you would get in a large number of, of particular Baptist churches would be solos of people who believed they were being moved by the Spirit to begin to sing. Now, as particular Baptist theologians began to reflect on this a bit more, they realised that actually the Holy Spirit had given them already a whole book in the Bible of inspired songs that they could begin to sing together as a congregation. So then eventually they moved to sing together as a congregation, but they sing psalms. And it's really only in the 1680s through people like Benjamin Keach, um, who was trying to really encourage 
people in his Baptist church in London to, to appreciate the Lord's Supper a bit more. It's really only at that point that Baptists begin to think, well, why don't we actually um, try to not just sing psalms, but to sing versifications of whatever New Testament passage we've just been reading. So they introduce paraphrases and those paraphrases eventually become hymns. But even into the 1620s in London, no, 1720s, so a hundred years really after the Baptist movement begins, in the 1720s, there are still what they call non-singing Baptist churches, particular Baptist churches in London. Um, and, you know, I suppose it's one way to solve the worship wars, isn't it? Just don't sing at all. Um, but 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 that, that really is what they were known for. So when Isaac Watts and so on was you know, belting out um, whatever it was that he was singing um, in the congregation that used to be led by John Owen. There were still Baptists in London who believed that they had to wait for the spirit to move before anyone could sing. And that when anyone did sing, it would be a single individual and not not a congregation. So there's, there's lots about this, I think, that uh, is kind of fascinating. You know, we tend today to, to fixate on were they Arminians or were they Calvinists? Well, of course, they were both. Um, the, the General Baptists were Arminian, mostly, uh, not always, uh, and the particulars were Calvinists pretty much exclusively. We tend not to think about the different structures that they had. The generals were basically Presbyterian. The particulars were basically autonomous, but in associations. And we tend not to think about the different styles of worship that they had. The generals having this kind of almost charismatic expectation of the Spirit's work, whereas the particulars moving from that to a much more recognisable congregational psalm singing, paraphrase singing, later hymn singing tradition. So although we talk today about a Baptist identity, there's lots of different Baptist identities in the 17th century. Our Baptist churches today tend, even if they don't, even if they feel a little bit uneasy, let's say about some aspects of Calvinism, they, they, they operate by and large within traditions that were established within the particular Baptist community. Does that make sense? So they accept congregational autonomy. They accept the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs um, out of hymn books. Uh, and those those were um, things that were developed within the particular Baptist tradition, this Calvinistic Baptist tradition. Uh, so although in the 18th century, there's real efforts to bring these two groups into one community. And of course, that really takes off in Spurgeon's time as well, much to his dismay. Um, we, we today... Um, tend tend to think of what what we today tend to think of as Baptist identity is what in the 17th century would have been known as particular Baptist identity. That's really helpful, and I, I think that does resolve a lot of e even tensions uh, that people have. Some people are very strong on how they try and argue uh, origins of a Baptist identity, and I think you just made very clear just how complex that very question is. And uh, I think that certainly causes us to afford a lot of grace to each other as we try and wrestle through these things. Uh, but 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 also just shows even how doctrine and even more so church practice so often takes time to be talked through and thought carefully about. Now, if there's one thing that could be more complex than Baptist identity, it might be the man Cromwell. Uh, and yet it's very hard to talk about Ireland without his name uh, uh, being discussed. He's such a complex figure on the island. He, uh, as soon as you mention him, many are, are immediately immediately react with disgust. Um, 
And yet, clearly, there's an impact that is had here on the island. How do we begin as Christians to think about a man like Cromwell, and especially as his impact on the island? How do we begin to think through somebody like him? I think it's really difficult. I mean, I do think it's really difficult. Um, Cromwell, as you say, is, is vilified in Ireland. His memory is a, is a memory of of um, certainly ethnic cleansing, perhaps even genocide. That's how he's remembered here. Um, by contrast, when when surveys are taken of Great Britain's, Cromwell's name is regularly in the top ten, top fifteen uh, of of most admired British people by by British people. So, which of those two is right? Is he a Great Britain? Or is he um, the man responsible for the death and destruction of an island? It's both. You know, it has to be both. It depends what it is you're looking for. Um, Cromwell is is quite a complicated figure, I think. Um, he and, and I suppose the way you answer that question depends a lot on your own religious and political presuppositions. So if you are on the British left, let's say, um, you might well admire Cromwell for his republicanism and for his decision to execute a king and turn England into a republic. Uh, if you are in Scotland or England or Jamaica, three countries that Cromwellian forces conquered in the 1650s, you might have a very different view of that because actually you don't really want to be part of someone else's empire. So, uh, you know, I think it very much depends on your perspective. If if there are things in this life that you find you can admire, that's great, good. If there's things in this life that cause you dismay, that's worth thinking about as well. Um, but Cromwell, I mean, Cromwell is a mixed a mixed up person. But I, th- I think I think he understood he was mixed up. If you, if you read his own letters, his letters, um, I think g- give you a real sense of his anxieties. Um, not only is his personal spiritual anxieties, his anxieties about salvation and assurance of faith, um, but also his anxieties about whether it was right for his troops to end up uh, killing three thousand people in Drogheda as they did, which he, you know, that that that's not that's not a controvertible fact. He wrote that in a letter back to the London Parliament and explained his deep regret at the action. And said that the only way it could not work regret is that if other towns learned the lesson of Drogheda and didn't try to hold out in a siege. Now, I will say that um, there's an awful lot of myth making around Cromwell, and a lot of it's deeply ironic, you know, really deeply ironic. Um, so that you know the murals of Cromwell you see in certain parts of Belfast, for example, just don't take account of the fact that he was a Republican fighting against monarchy. That's, I mean, that, that, that's a really fundamental part of what of, of his political view. Um, by the same token, uh, in, uh, the, 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 in, in another context uh, on this island, the sort of demonization of Cromwell for the slaughtering, the mass slaughtering of civilians at Drogheda isn't quite accurate either, because uh, almost all of those 3,000 people who were killed were actually English soldiers stationed in the town. Now, there were some civilians killed in the crossfire, but certainly not three thousand, and um, and and without without wanting to sound necessarily defensive of Cromwell, because I mean I've written about this, and and I think tried to be balanced in in a in a critique of it. Uh, 
nothing that he, or very little that he did in Ireland was against the normal rules of war at the time. So although it looks horrific, and it is horrific, and no one would want to be a victim of the new model army in 1649, 1650, um, it was not horrific by European standards. Europe had just passed through the 30 Years' War, 1618 to 1648, and there's any number of horrific sieges, you know, really brutal actions. And, you know, the troops on the field in Ireland were fighting against troops that they had fought in England, uh, English royalists who now had moved to Ireland after the execution of the king and tried to uh, establish a defensive redoubt uh, here. Um, but that's, I mean, that's not in any way to take away from the fundamental fact of the Cromwellian years, which is that by the end of that period, native Irish people owned only 20% of the land of Ireland. Uh, and, and the Cromwellian period set in motion this massive land transfer, pushing population groups away from the best land, literally pushing population groups away. That's, that's nowadays what we call ethnic cleansing. When, when large parts of territory are cleansed of a population group, that's called ethnic cleansing. So undoubtedly the Cromwellian forces were guilty of ethnic cleansing. Some have gone further to argue they were guilty of genocide. I don't think that's true. Um, but the ethnic cleansing charge certainly sticks. But as, as I said, Cromwell's a very mixed up figure because at the same time as he went against um, Irish Catholics, he didn't always do this because they were Catholic. And in fact, uh, he wrote a letter to the bishops in Ireland and said that if Irish Catholics were prepared to worship privately, he would grant them more or less religious toleration. And so for all that Cromwell is vilified as this, as this anti-Catholic, um, I don't know what the correct word would be, but for all that he's vilified for his anti-Catholicism in Ireland, he's actually in the Scottish Catholic tradition recognised as the saviour of Scottish Catholicism. Because believe it or not, the, the year after he, so he invaded Ireland in 1649, in 1650 he invaded Scotland. Um, but the Scottish Catholics were subject to much worse conditions or prospects, I should say, than uh, under the Presbyterians, than Irish Catholics were under um, uh, under Cromwell. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's complicated. It is complicated. And I think almost everything that people say about Cromwell is true, even when it's contradictory. But that's just the kind of person he was. That's helpful, and and I think you've highlighted as well just why the man is is so divisive. That that you know complex nature to his personality makes him easy to pick up for some as a hero, and to pick up for others as the worst of enemies. At that particular time period in Ireland, that especially the second half of the 1600s, we start to see the first Baptist congregations forming on the island in uh, Dublin, Waterford and Cork as well. Why do the, those congregations, first of all, why do they appear in those particular cities? And do we know anything about them and, and what they were like at that particular period, the type of issues they were thinking about? Well, yeah, they, so, so Baptist churches emerge in Dublin, Waterford and Cork. And in about eight other places, including Carrickfergus, um, in the early 1650s. And the reason why they emerged in the early 1650s is because these congregations are set up by Cromwellian soldiers. So the reason they, uh, they, they form in, in those towns is because those are garrison towns. So 
we we spoke before about why did the Irish Reformation fail and why did some groups really fail to make an impact? Well, the reason uh, the Baptist movement failed to make almost any impact, in fact, I think actually any impact outside English circles is because the early Baptists were all or almost all soldiers. Um, they, they had no sympathies, as far as I can tell, reading their work for anyone outside the English community, the English-speaking community. And sad to say, the Baptists, it's recognised that the Baptists were the group least likely to engage in any evangelism um, of the native population. So by this stage, 1650s, Baptist churches had, found in these, had been founded in these garrison towns, but Scottish Presbyterians had begun to send out Gaelic-speaking Highlanders to preach to Irish-speaking folk in the west of Ireland, for example. Um, elsewhere in Munster, in the southwest, there were other initiatives being taken to, to attempt some kind of, of evangelism of, of the native population. Baptists had nothing to do with that. And we're, we're quite content to sit and think about questions of ecclesiology or church order, I think. Um, but I, th I think also just you know because of who they were, they tended to identify very, very closely with the Republican cause. And therefore, look, we're, we're very worried about Presbyterians who they thought were a bit soft in monarchy um, or even ex-Church of Ireland people in, in Munster in the Southwest who they also thought were quite soft in monarchy. So Baptists, I think, allowed their, their political presuppositions to limit the kind of work that they might want to do. Although, as it, ironically, as it turns out at this point, um, they tend to be Republican, or in fact, they, they're emphatically Republican uh, in, in, in this period. So then when the army disappears, or, or rather when the Cromwellian army disappears at the end of the 1650s, early 1660s, those Baptist churches go into very, very rapid decline. And this, they're a small number to begin with. I don't know, maybe 12, 15, something like that. Um, we can't trace them all. But by the end of the 17th century, they're down to about six in number. As you move into the 18th century, the number declines and declines and declines uh, until one of the big Baptist, formerly big Baptist churches uh, in Dublin, the entire congregation could fit in one pew. And the, the pastor of that church um, was so disappointed by the way that things were turning out, he decided that the only way he could really finance the, the changes he needed in the church's building were by entering a lottery. So that, you know, that, that kind of gives you a, a sense of just actually how desperate the situation for Baptists had become uh, in the middle of the 18th century. But it was, it was hard for them, you know, because laws had come in after the end of the Cromwellian period, laws called the penal laws. Now, today, when we think about the penal laws, we tend to think about these, these as laws against Catholics. And they were. You know, they, they said that, for example, land, Catholic landowners could not pass their land intact to one son. They had to keep splitting it up equally among all sons, which meant that the number of Catholic landowners increased, but the parcels of land they owned continually diminished in size. So it, th these were strategies designed deliberately to impoverish Catholics. But they're all, and there was political measures as well. You know, they couldn't vote. Uh, they had to sell a horse, any horse at the maximum price of five pounds, no matter how good the horse was. All of these were, were efforts to, to diminish the threat that Catholicism represented in Ireland to the Church of Ireland government. But penal laws were also applied against Presbyterians, Baptists, Congregationalists, and any other uh, groups, including Quakers. 
Uh, and, and those laws could, could be really difficult because, um, for example, Presbyterians, um, a, a Presbyterian could, a Presbyterian minister could not marry two Presbyterians and have that marriage legally recognised until the late 1830s. So from 1660 till about the 1830s, when dissenters got married, they had to abandon their church principles and get married by the local Church of Ireland minister or be consistent with our churchmen, their, their, their ecclesiological beliefs, reject the claims of the state church, be married by the minister of their own congregation, recognising that that marriage would not be recognised by law, that the law would regard their children as illegitimate, that officially, according to the state, they'd be living in sin, and that therefore they couldn't pass on property to their children in any legal way. So that, that was the choice that Baptists were faced with. And so, I mean, that, that, that was common to Presbyterians and Congregationalists as well. The difference was, I suppose, that, that Presbyterians could easily go across to Scotland if they wanted to get married in, in, in a Presbyterian church that was legally recognised. They had ways to do it. Baptists couldn't. Congregationalists couldn't. And those two communities decline and decline and decline because, you know, what, what's the point of being a Baptist? There's only like three congregations left. There's only about 12 in each congregation. Um, if I marry... Uh, my Baptist partner in my Baptist church, the state regards us as living in sin. Our children are illegitimate. We, they can't inherit our property. You know, it's absolutely without a future. And on top of that, there are also really difficult relationships between dissenting groups. So um, Presbyterians were very, very hard against Baptists in this period. And, um, you know, while, while they dominated the most Protestant part of Ireland, and really were an established church in waiting, they were also absolutely committed to the principle of religious anti-toleration. So they, they didn't object to the Church of Ireland's persecution because they thought persecution was wrong. They objected to Church of Ireland's persecution because they thought they should be the people doing the persecuting. And, and little groups like the Baptists just get caught between these massive icebergs. It's a bit like that scene in Star Wars, A New Hope, where they're all in the garbage can and the walls are pressing in against them. You know, that's that's kind of the situation of Baptists in the 18th and even the early 19th century. That begins to change after 1859. But that's that's another story. I've, ne I've never had uh, Baptist history explained with a Star Wars illustration, so that was particularly uh, helpful. If we jump back into the end of the 1600s and we maybe pull out beyond uh, the Baptists and think just about the island generally. The, the wars uh, in 1690, what, what sort of impact did that have on gospel work and the uh, uh, Christian identity on, on the island at the time? So we're talking now about the, um, the Williamite revolution or the so-called Glorious Revolution um, beginning in 1688 coming up really to 1690. People would talk about the Glorious Revolution, and it was a Glorious Revolution in England um, in that the transfer of power was pretty peaceful. In Scotland, there was um, significant violence, but Ireland was a bloodbath. And in Ireland, for example, at the Battle of Ockram, something like 20,000 people get killed in a single day. Uh, that That is... Um, I, th I think that's the biggest single loss of life on any day in the history of this island, as far as we can tell. 
And even in the 1720s, 30 years later, tourists would still go to the site of the battle and see the thousands of skulls that continued to litter the landscape. I mean, it was really a bloodbath, really a bloodbath. Um, what was the impact on gospel work? I don't know because gospel work isn't really a priority for people in this period. What seems to be a priority for the Church of Ireland is staying in power. The Church of Ireland, remember, represented 10% of the population, but that 10% of the population controlled all the levers of power and prestige. Only Church of Ireland people could enter Parliament or the legal profession, become judges, enact laws, go to university, uh, you name it. Presbyterians represented another 10% of the population, but they were subject to penal laws, uh, some of which I just described. They were a very important population because they were a buffer population between the Church of Ireland minority and the Catholic majority, which represented about 80% of the population. But after the 1690s, the percentage of land that Catholics owned was down to 5%. So the penal laws really begin to, to take effect in a very stringent way, so that 80% of the population owned 5% of the land. And, you know, that's, you know, wh whatever you think about the rights and wrongs of the Glorious Revolution, the fact that people were robbed of land in that way, robbed of power, robbed of toleration, and so on, is, is a very striking thing. So we tend to associate the Glorious Revolution, so-called, with the rise of religious liberty. That's certainly what took place in England. In 1689, there was an act of toleration, and of course, that's when Baptists in England produce that great confession of faith that we know as the 1689 Confession of Faith. It was done in the immediate aftermath of this gesture for religious toleration. But there was no similar act of religious toleration in Ireland. So for all that, dissenters, Presbyterians, Baptists and so on, doubtless fought in support of William in his war against James. They may have been fighting for religious toleration, but they weren't given it. Their co-religious in England were, but Baptists and other dissenters in Ireland were not, not until 1719, not for a further 30 years, would they get any form of religious toleration. So that, I think, creates a real sense of grievance among certain dissenters, Presbyterians, Baptists, and so on. They find themselves fighting for what they see as a Protestant constitution under William. But then it turns out it's not a Protestant constitution. It's a Church of Ireland constitution that they really don't have any part in. And the Church of Ireland um, elite really only begin very slowly to um, allow Presbyterians in particular, but other dissenters as well, into power as they, as they see the Catholic population no longer as a threat. Now, through the 18th century, whoever the Presbyterians align with will ultimately be successful in their aims. So as long as the Presbyterians align themselves with the Church of Ireland, the Protestant ascendancy is pretty much secure. But at the end of the century, when the Presbyterians begin to align themselves with the United Irishman movement, then it really gets a massive impetus and the constitution is, you know, very volatile uh, through, through, through that period as well. So in terms of the Glorious Revolution's impact in gospel work, I, I, I don't really think there's much of an effort in terms of evangelism during this period. This is the early enlightenment. This is the rise of religious skepticism. Um, this is the rise of groups, libertine groups like the Hellfire Club in Dublin. 
um, which were notorious in their own time and since. Um, Presbyterians through the early 18th century divide over issues like the Trinity. Should they believe in the Trinity or not? Quite an extraordinary thing. Uh, and that's an issue that they can't really solve for the next 100 years. It's not really until the 1820s, 1830s, that they're able to finally push the uh, anti-Trinitarian Presbyterians out of their denomination. Um, so, you know, th there's a lot of unsettledness through this period. And of course, uh, dissenters are often pushing for political rights as well. Um, so, you know, all, all of that's going through. So I don't think 16, 1688 to 90 really makes much difference in terms of uh, gospel work. I just think it makes it harder. And so I think it's so significant then that when we talked about revival earlier on, but when revival does break out again in 1859, it does so through the work of a Baptist missionary knocking on doors around Connor and in circumstances that ultimately lead to um, the, the, the reconfiguration of these big denominations as evangelical. I'm not sure you can really say they're evangelical up to this point. Let me express our thanks to Dr. Crawford Gribben for giving us time and allowing us to think through some of these very complicated issues. If you've been enjoying the Saints and Scholars podcast, please uh, subscribe and like uh, to follow the content that comes. In our next episode, we're going to be talking to an American man talking about an English man who was one of the first pastors of an Irish Baptist church. So I guess the complications continue. Join us next week to hear more. <laughs>